Residents and Fellows audio podcast. This is Dr. Shobhana Rajan, staff anesthesiologist at the Cleveland Clinic. And on behalf of the Education Committee of the SNAC, we extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Andrew Kofke, who is Director of Neuroanesthesiology and Critical Care at the University of Pennsylvania. Our topic today is Neurointensive Care Unit Management of Subarachnoid Hemorrhage. Dr. Kofke needs no introduction as he is well known to all of us. His story is very interesting in that he started off as an ambulance attendant as a teenager, dealing with Red Cross, First Aid, and CPR. He realized that although many patients got resuscitated, neurological outcomes and cerebral resuscitation were always problematic. This led him to medical school at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where he participated in brain resuscitation research and met his mentors, Dr. Morris Albin, who was the co-founder of the SNAC, and others. And this formed the basis for his career in clinical neurosciences and critical care. Dr. Kofke's first faculty position was at Hershey Medical Center, and subsequently he was on the faculty at the University of Pittsburgh, then West Virginia University, and finally University of Pennsylvania from the year 2000 till now. Dr. Kofke was director of neuroanesthesia at all all these three places, and initiated the founding of a neuro-ICU at Pittsburgh and the neurocritical program at UPenn. His entire career has been dedicated to improving our ability to manage patients in neurosurgery and the neuro-ICU. He has been involved in evaluating anesthetics and diseases associated with neuro-excitation and neurotoxicity and recurrently in research and R01 grants that involve assessment of cerebral perfusion and brain metabolism and anesthetic management of endovascular therapy of ischemic stroke. He has multiple publications and book chapters, and I can go on and on. He served as the president of the SNAC, which is the Society of Neuroscience and Anesthesiology and Critical Care, um, in the year uh, 2015 to 2016. We are greatly honored to have him today with us. Welcome, Dr. Kofi, and thank you for agreeing to do this podcast. Yes, uh, thank you for inviting me. So, could you please tell us a little about the pathophysiology of subarachnoid hemorrhage with regards to intracranial pressure, cerebral autoregulation, etc., so that we can understand the disease process? So, it starts with a uh, um, uh, a bleed of blood from major artery in the head, which can um, result in the pressure in the brain exceeding um, arterial pressure. This is shown Mm -hmm. in an article by Eng and Lam years ago where they actually demonstrated an intracranial circulatory arrest in a patient who they were monitoring with transcranial Doppler. So it starts with a very high pressure uh, cessation of flow, which if the patient becomes unconscious is probably what happened. Uh, The blood then leaks out, which then uh, causes... um, uh, uh, predisposition to obstruction and hydrocephalus, uh, and then later on, irritation of the blood vessels um, um, uh, such that the vasospasm can become a problem. Um, and of course, you have the, um, the source of the bleed, which if it isn't secured, can, can be another uh, source of uh, re-bleeding. So that's sort of the essential elements of the disease process that's really much more complicated than what I just said. Sure. We've seen that uh, these patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage can have alterations in their EKG. Should we consult a cardiologist? How should we approach this? 
Well, when I first started uh, doing this in the 80s, we would uh, notice that the patients had EKG changes and enzymes would go up and we'd send them for, for a stat cath. And at catheterization, mm-hmm. we would find the coronaries were clean. Uh, okay. Over the years, it's, it's become clear that this is not an atherosclerotic coronary uh, uh, disease problem. If, it, if there's any coronary perfusion issues, it's related to perhaps a Prince metal-like uh, spasm associated mm-hmm. with high blood pressure or the catecholamines um, or, or um, uh, increased myocardial oxygen demand. So uh, I typically don't car- consult a cardiologist. What I'll do is if there's no EKG changes, I'll, I'll just follow them. If there are EKG changes, I'll get an echo. And if the echo is abnormal, then we may consult a cardiologist to help us with that. Um, if the patient has a history of coronary disease, atherosclerotic coronary disease, we may, get them in, we may treat it differently. Sure. And have you seen many patients with cardiomyopathy as well? Um, with sabbatic it's a, it's a minority, but it's got to be a severe subarachnoid okay. hemorrhage with a high catecholamine um, condition where they get the stress cardiomyopathy. Got it. Okay. So what are the pulmonary complications that occur secondary to subarachnoid hemorrhage, and how do we avoid them? Well, the first is a failure to protect the airway, which occurs if they're comatose. Um, or if they have a full stomach or something, something like that. So, the, so, um, so that's the first pulmonary complication is aspiration, and then a secondary, comp- and then a second uh, aspiration, and uh, then of course if they're intubated, hospital acquired pneumonia, and things like that. Then there's always a concern that if there's a a severe uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage with a, uh, a a profound adrenergic surge, you may get neurogenic pulmonary edema, uh, which mm. requires intubation and PEEP and um, and, and people debate how to manage that. You know, do you diurese them? Do you treat the blood pressure? Do you, uh, you know, what, you know, what, what do you do? Because they've got pulmonary edema, but the hydrostatic processes that led to the pulmonary edema have resolved by the time you see them. Uh, you know, the, the massive increase of blood pressure by the time they're in your unit is is generally controlled. Yet they have the pulmonary edema from having been hypertensive hours before. Sure. So um, when do you decide to intubate these patients in the NICU? And if you do intubate, would you still hyperventilate them for a raised ICP? We were wondering if the CO2 reactivity is still intact in these patients. So um, again, the intubation is not dissimilar from other other neurologic problems, which basically is, is the patient able to protect his or her um, airway related, uh, uh, um, related to um, the neurologic deficits, uh, you know, coma or, or posterior cranial nerve uh, deficits. In those cases, the patients um, may be intubated, um, and, and it's often in sort of a quasi-elective manner where you see that they're gradually decreasing or they're gradually decreasing and they're going to a procedure, and then they'll be intubated to protect their airway, um, you know, to you know, to ha- have to have diagnostic or therapeutic uh, procedures done. Uh, as for yeah. hyperventilation, that's something that we don't do routinely, and it's an adaptation from the trauma study. Trauma studies where they routinely hyperventilated hyperventilated everybody and found that um, found that the outcomes were worse. I if I have a CBF monitor on them or some sort of a PPO2 or something then I may adjust um, the ventilation to, I, I, I like to individualize individualize it if I have the data. Um, if the ICP is high and I think that they're hyperemic, then I'll, I will uh, tend to um, 
be a little bit more aggressive with this with the hyperventilation. CO2 reactivity mm-hmm. is 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 variably intact. I'm I'm quite I'm quite mm-hmm. sure. If you have vasospasm, the vasospastic vessels are probably not reactive. If you have elevation okay. in ICP, there's probably some reactivity, but I'm sure it's it's heterogeneous probably and. Um, you know, mm-hmm. when you see it, because you hyperventilate them, and the C- if the ICP doesn't change, then there's no reactivity. <laughs> sure, yeah. No, that makes sense. So it is said that the outcome of this disease is highly dependent on timely and expert patient care. What is the current consensus regarding endovascular approach versus open clipping in a patient with an aneurysm bleed? So that's a complicated question, but right now the the data is pointing towards endovascular approaches. Of course, that's okay. with people who haven't had outcomes 30 years later. Um, you know, those are I don't know a few years after the endovascular approach, and they're finding that they're having equivalent outcomes. But if you get an endovascular approach for an aneurysm when you're 40 years old, what's it like when you're 80? Uh, well, we don't we don't know. Uh, okay. So I think I think that there's a logic for clipping if they're younger and doing endovascular if they're older, uh, but there's no data to support what I just said. It's just sort of my common sense. Yeah, that would make a very interesting study, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like almost yeah. like the Framingham study will follow people through their lives after they get their um, their after they get after they get coiled if they're young. Sure. Yeah. And we have read that there is a trend also towards early operative intervention in high-risk patients who were previously considered unsuitable for surgery. Is this true? Uh, I think it is. Um, you know, it's a neurosurgeon's judgment. Um, uh, you know, if the patient is 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 uh, really unstable, they'll tend to delay just to let the disease declare itself in terms of possible outcomes. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, when I started doing this, it was we it was mandated to wait and wait through the full vasospasm period before taking them to the OR. And over the years, it's been getting progressively earlier and earlier. So I think there's a good okay. consensus to, to to get the aneurysm secured as soon as possible. Sure. Um, and certainly with endovascular approaches now, um, I think that the uh, the sicker patients are more inclined to get uh, get get done in the IR suite also, although, uh, yes, yeah, yep. Yeah. So what is the role of ICP monitoring for these patients? Do you routinely do them, and do you do, like, invasive monitors, and if so, what's the gold standard? Well, ICP monitoring has varying data and evidence to support it. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. that... I. If a patient is unconscious, and I think that there's swelling that can be managed in a personalized, precision manner, I like to see uh, ICP mo- an ICP monitor in. But then you're still faced with a quandary of if the ICP is elevated, is it because of hyperemia or is it because of edema and oligemia? And that's where the other monitors I find to be helpful, which we commonly do in our unit, which is um, PBO2, invasive CBF, and microdialysis. And then you can develop the subsets of intracranial pressure and titrate your ICP management accordingly. Sometimes it ends up that they simply need a decompressive hemicraniectomy. Other times they need to have mm-hmm. their, blood, their blood pressure controlled, or maybe if you see that they're hyperemic, they need to have they need to be hyperventilated. 
but that's, yeah. that's, what the, that's what the future of the ICP field is going to be uh, going to hold for us. So I, I think it's helpful, um, but not there, there's not uniform agreement on that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, the major complications of subarachnoid hemorrhage are vasospasm, re-bleeding, and hydrocephalus. Our neuroanesthesia fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, Dipali Garg, would like to ask you some questions about vasospasm. Thank you, Dr. Rajan. Uh, hello, Dr. Kofi. Yeah. It's great hello, honor Dr. to be a part of this podcast uh, with you. Yes, okay. hello, Dr. Garg. So, sure. The question, my question to you is, uh, what monitoring can be used to detect vasospasm in these patients postoperatively? And if detected, how can we manage the vasospasm? So what we need is a cerebral blood flow monitor, a regional cerebral blood flow monitor with different patches that we could put on the head, which would give us blood flow and oxygen extraction fraction. Uh, too bad, that's not available right now. That's the topic of some research that we're doing at, at, at Penn, so that one day we will have actual blood flow monitors where you can say, aha, this patient's in spasm, we need to do something right now. Um, so uh, the monitoring then that we have available now, some places use EEG, um, EEG monitors with uh, with specific indicators of low blood flow. Unfortunately, you don't have someone reading that continuously generally, and you get a read. At least at our place, we'll get a read at a certain time of day that gee, it looked like they may have started spasm six years, six hours ago. Uh, and of course, time is brain with vasospasm also, and you like to get it fixed as soon as you can. So um, so now the gold standard really for monitoring really is the clinical exam and um, transcranial Doppler. And then that's then supplemented by imaging studies like CT, uh, CTA, CT perfusion, and ultimately um, uh, 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 angiography. And the way that we manage, the way that uh, vasospasm is managed is another moving target. It used to be the uh, hemodilution, hypertension, uh, hemodilution, hypertension, and, um, and, and hypervolemia. Um, well, now... Um, you know, now it's just hypertension, and even that's being um, being debated. So, um, so nonetheless, the, the way that we manage that we manage patients is to keep the keep the perfusion pressure up as best we can, cautiously use pressors, um, and if we and and then uh, go go to the interventional suite where they'll get either an infusion of a vasodilator or uh, or, or an angioplasty. It's usually an infusion of, of uh, at our places nicardipine. Uh, um, other places mm-hmm. use Bramamil or other drugs, um, and that's how we that's how we manage it um, right now. There's not it's kind of a not a very satisfying uh, um, situation right now. Although my sense is that it's been getting better over the years. Sure. So you mentioned TCD. So although uh, it's highly sensitive and it has a negative predictive value, which should make it an ideal monitoring device, but why is it still not the standard of care? Oh, I, I'm not so sure. You know, I can't quote you the exact numbers, but there's ver- the papers vary on the sensitivity and the um, uh, 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 sensitivity of, of TCD uh, for monitoring for vasospasm. And we've all seen um, patients who have very high TCDs and they end up with a normal normal angiogram or vice versa. Um, and there's things that can artifact it, like are they being stimulated, are they anemic, are there, is there a fever, things that can add, that, that are just increasing CBF, and they're not causing vasospasm. Uh, but nonetheless, at our place, it is, it is a standard, and it's just part of the multi, 
many factors that go into trying to assess a patient to decide if they've got um, vasospasm going on. So I think it is a, it's a it's it's a it's a standard of care in many places, but not all. Mm, I think they do use it at the Cleveland Clinic also. I've seen them yeah. use it in the neuro ICU. Uh-huh. So our neuroanesthesia fellow Sonal Patel would like to ask you a question about rebleeding. Thank okay. you, Dr. Rajan. Hi, Dr. Kofke. It's my great Hi, privilege to be interacting with you. Thank you. Yes, hello, Dr. So my po- Hi. Uh, I would like to know what are the predictors of rebleeding and what is the role of antifibrinolytics in the prevention of rebleeding? So, um you know, my my understanding of the data is that the predictors of rebleeding are basically our hypertension and an unsecured aneurysm. Um, I suppose if there if there's if there's coagulation, if they're anticoagulated, they'll be at risk for it uh, also. Uh, but that that should be reversed um, quickly. But you can have other factors like um, you know end stage renal failure and other things where you have endogenous uh, coagulopathies and so on, which can predispose to rebleeding. Things which perhaps aren't known to the team. Uh, fibrinolytics uh, were used routinely when I first started um, doing uh, neurocritical care where the patients would be kept on Amicar for, uh, for 10 days um, to try to keep them free from uh, rebleeding. And um, actually, not. Sh- I suppose it worked for that, but it also worked at clotting up the non-clotting up the arteries as they were going into vasospasm and causing ischemic strokes. So, so it kind of fell out of favor and uh, combined with the early approach to... Um, to getting the aneurysm secured, it's it's fallen out of use. That said, it occasionally comes up where um, we'll say, well, maybe we should put the patient on Amicar for um, overnight until you can have your your full team in tomorrow morning to uh, you know to, to 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 clip the aneurysm. So it's occasionally used on an ad hoc basis uh, temporarily. Okay. Um, so what are the blood pressure goals in the intensive care unit? So generically, the blood pressure goal is that is, is that lowest blood pressure, which will give you sufficient uh, perfusion. Unfortunately, we don't have a monitor for perfusion, so we end up uh, picking numbers out of some epidemiologic data set, or just based on the on the surgeons or the intensivist experience, or even our most recent bad um, experience. So. Um, after, after, whenever they first come in, we choose to. We generally will choose for a blood pressure, systolic blood pressure of less than 140. Uh, after they've gone to surgery, based on Cleveland Clinic data, um, for that first day after surgery, we will uh, try to keep the blood pressure less than 160. And then after, after the aneurysm is secured, and for the rest of the stay, it's 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 liberalized, so to speak, to let the blood pressure go up to 200 uh, until they get through the vasospasm risk um, period. But I view these to be all empiric and physiologically derived, not at all personalized. Okay, sure. Uh, so, Dr. Kofke, what about seizure control? What are the drugs that you use for that in the ICU? Well, uh, first of all, the, for seizure prophylaxis, uh, that, that's another moving target. It used to be that everybody got it for like months. Now it's like um, if they didn't have a seizure, they may not get they may not get prophylaxis, uh, or they may get it for seven days. Or if they had a seizure, they'll get seizure prophylaxis for three months. You know, and these are sort of numbers that are that are. Um, I won't say they're picked out of the air. There's a variety of studies that I'm not that familiar with, um, which uh, are are used to to guide this. And the and the drugs that tend to be used uh, used to be always dilantin or phosphen, uh, uh, phenytoin or phosphenatoin, 
Um, and it seems like the things are shifting towards uh, uh, Kepra uh, levetiracetam, I think is the proper name for it, mm-hmm. as first-line yeah. drugs anyway. Sure. Um, so you did already mention something about brain tissue oxygen tension, brain oxygen tension man- measurement, but I would like you to tell us a little bit more. How do you use that to manage these patients in the ICU? And uh, we'd like to know your experience with both the invasive and non-invasive monitoring uh, methods of monitoring of the brain oxygenation and brain metabolism. I guess that would help titrate uh, management, isn't it, based on the on the clinical endpoints? Yes, it's my my dream that one day we'll have non-invasive monitors of blood flow and metabolism, so you won't have to um, have any issues with the complications or the uh, you know just the issues with with invasive monitors. With respect to PBO2, we've been um, using that at Penn like since um, around 2000 with with numerous publications, and um, they generally you know they're most they're they're generally retrospective, but they're Uniform in, in indicating that um, brain PBO2 monitoring is, is is helpful, and if the PBO2 is kept over 20, the patients seem to have better outcomes. Um, and if you do IC, ICP monitoring and PBO2 monitoring, you can even have normal ICP, and if the PBO2 is low, that portends a, a worse uh, a worse outcome. So we try to maintain normal. Normal ICP and normal PBO2 with things like blood pressure and transfusion and oxygen management and so on to try to keep the PBO2 in what we consider to be a a good number. We, you know, anecdotally we see that whenever the patients are dying, you know, that the PBO2 really does fall dramatically and really does indicate that there's a, a lack of blood flow in the brain. Um, which the non-invasive the non-invasive methods are are um, for blood flow monitoring are in development at at Penn and other places, um, and we just published a paper in Neurocritical Care showing that the CPF a non-invasive CPF monitoring can um, can uh, uh, associate or detect uh, drops in PBO2 in neuroICU patients. So that's a a helpful thing for the uh, for the future. There's other monitors, uh, jugular bulb, which we don't use very much in this context because that's best for you, for diffuse injury, whereas subarachnoid hemorrhage has to be focal, so it can give you false numbers. Um, and then the other invasive monitors are um, the invasive CBF monitor, which people have published that that that, that can be helpful for um, for vasospasm monitoring, but we're, we have a lot of well, we actually have difficulty with it. And microdialysis is very very helpful. But of course, it's it's very focal. So if you've got a microdialysis probe on the right side and the vasospasm happens on the left, then you miss it. Um, so we're we're in an unsatisfied an unsatisfying period in our history in terms of invasive monitoring of brain oxygenation, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay, Dr. Kofke, what is the volume status in these patients usually? And do you do goal-directed fluid management in the intensive care unit? And if so, how do you monitor and manage them? Yeah, you know, this is the same thing we argued about when I was a fellow in the 80s. Um, so what's this patient's volume status? Is he wet or dry? Um, let's put a swan in. No, swans are out now. Let's let's do, you know, and there's all sorts of measures that people do. Um, and you end up looking at the eyes and nose and the weights and their and, and their uh, electrolytes and their hemoglobin and 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 
get all these factors in to try to make an assessment of whether the patient is hypernormo or hypo um, bulimic, and it's always just an estimate. And by goal-directed fluid management, um, if that means directed to, uh, you know, in uh, Claudia Robertson did did a study on goal-directed fluid management for ICP control and found that there was a high incidence of ARDS, but um, but I'm not sure that her goal was lung-oriented. Um, you know, so as long as you're, you know, and indeed, uh, when I used to do hyperbulimia therapy for subarachnoid hemorrhage, I knew that they were going to get a pleural effusion and pulmonary edema. Um, you know, it always happened, and now we don't see that so much. So the goal is euvolemia, um, as judged as best you can by the, all the bedside indicators that you have, um, you know, and that, that's what we have. Later on in the case, we often have the patient's spontaneously diuresing as they get uh, cerebral salt wasting, and then we simply replace a urine output, um, re- replace a urine output with uh, saline-containing fluids uh, to try to keep the sodium up. Sure. Uh, Dr. Kofke, can you tell us something about the albumin in subarachnoid hemorrhage study, also called the ALISA study, and its conclusions? So that started when Dr. Suarez was at that other hospital across town. I think it's called Case Western or something. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and his P&T committee decided that it was too expensive for him to be giving albumin to all these patients. It was just killing their bank. So they prohibited his use of it. So he published a retrospective study then, sort of, it was a retrospective study that I'm sure annoyed his institution, showing an increased death rate related to this, to this basic, basically to this experiment that was imposed on him by the administrators at, at that hospital. And he showed that patients died. So it was a non-therapeutic QI study with the outcome of death versus cost, which I've actually written about, a non-therapeutic QI. It's a whole other, whole other field. Subsequently, he went to Baylor. I don't know if it was related to his institution's displeasure or not. I haven't asked him. Um, but he went to Baylor and then started to continue to ask this question about, gee, this data from Case Western suggests that the albumin might be neuroprotective. So thus has embarked on studies and getting studies and getting NIH funding to explore the notion that albumin might be neuroprotective given for phasospasm. It was been a, a long-held um, reliable fluid given for spasm, and then it's been withheld because of the cost cutters in, in various hospitals and made difficult to get. Um, but he has data that um, shows that it's safe, that, that there may be some positive impacts on TCD. But as far as I know, the final study isn't out yet. Uh, as far as I know, the final study isn't out yet, but I could be wrong on that. I haven't been following it that closely. Mm-hmm. Sure. So how frequent are electrolyte disturbances like hyponatremia in subarachnoid hemorrhage, and how do we make a differential diagnosis between uh, SIADH, uh, diabetes insipidus, and uh, cerebral salt wasting syndrome? Okay, so if they develop vasospasm, my observation is that the vasospasm will will be preceded by, uh, you see the sodium starting to fall. It will be around day five or so, and you'll notice mm. the sodium is 144, then it's 140, then it's 138. It's not officially abnormal yet, but, it's, but it has this trend. And then you notice that you're starting to put out a lot of urine. 
Um, so if you're putting out a lot of urine, it's probably not SIADH, and it's probably, uh, with the, um, the sodium falling, it's probably cerebral salt wasting, um, for which I give fluid and, um, and, and salt. Um, to, so there are some complicated lab tests that people are exploring to differentiate SIADH and salt wasting, but the R, my counter-argument is, so you diagnose SIADH in a, in a subarachnoid hemorrhage patient. Are you going to fluid restrict them? Of course not. Yeah, so you end up, uh, what, I like to, what I like to do is treat them as, insofar as possible, treat the volume and the, and the electrolytes as separate entities, even though I know that they're linked, and I'll try to treat the sodium with, the, the hyponatremia with sodium and the hypovolemia with fluid if needed, um, and, and I've gotten by over the years with that. DI is, is seldom seen with subarachnoid hemorrhage, although rarely you'll see it if there's an, a hypothalamic um, lack of blood flow, which results in a lack of, I think it's the pro-hormone for vasopressin, uh, which can um, be disrupted, um, leading to a, a very unusual type of uh, DI. And of course, DI is um, is high urine output, but instead of getting hyponatremic, you get hypernatremic. So if you see uh, high uh, a high urine, uh, a dilute urine a dilute and high urine output in the context of a of a uh, uh, concentrated serum, then it's likely DI, and then that gets treated with DDAVP and or whatever whatever it is is the therapy of the moment. Sure. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Coffey, for uh, participating in this po- podcast and uh, throwing some light on uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage and its ICU management. And thank you, Sonal and Deepali, for your participation as well. Dr. Coffey, thank you so much for your time. Yes, um, thank you for inviting me. I hope, I hope this is a uh, helpful discussion.